brought your Bibles with you today, open with me one more time to 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you didn't bring your own Bibles, it's the uh, passage for the sermon today is printed in your bulletins, or you can use one of those blue Bibles if you'd like to, and turn with me to page 239. As I said last week, if you were with us, uh, this is going to be our last sermon in the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to uh, put it on hold until probably uh, February or so of next year, and that's just the pattern of preaching that I follow. Uh, we're going to start next week with a new series that will take us through the summer. Uh, I'll tip my hand just a little bit. The name of the series is Clothed in Christ. I'm not going to tip it any further than that, but that's what we'll be looking at over the course of the summer. Now, whether or not you were here with us last week or if you're visiting with us today and you just happened to join us for the first time, you've jumped into the middle of the story of the book of 1 Samuel. And as we saw in the first part of this chapter, we're reading the second part of chapter 16 today. In the first part of this chapter, we saw that even though there was devastation at this point, point in chapter 15 in the kingship of Saul that resulted in his rejection, the rejection of his kingship, even though and even while that devastation was taking place, God had at the same time and in fact generations been before been preparing for Israel, for us, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that is to say a child who would be born from Jesse in the town of Bethlehem. And we saw that God led Samuel, his prophet, then to Bethlehem to discover who this child was. And his name showed up for the first time in Scripture. Uh, Ruth was actually in the Hebrew Bible after Samuel. But it shows up for the first time in Scripture, David, in verse 13, which is where we left off last week and where I'm going to begin reading this week. Of the word of God, Peter in the New Testament wrote this, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so as you listen today, you are listening to the God-breathed word of God addressed to us, to his people. Give your full attention to it. I'll begin at verse 13 and read through the end of the chapter. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse 
and said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Let's pray. Spirit of God, you authored this word that we have just read. You have preserved it and communicated it throughout the generations unto your people that we might be built up in our faith, that we might even understand you and your work in our midst. And so, Spirit of God, we pray that you, our teacher, would be today as we look at these words, as we look at the rather complicated aspects that go on in this passage, we pray that you would be with us, opening us up, pry us open, Lord, so that we don't sit here and just have these things bounce off of our minds and go flitting away from us, but we pray that they take deep root into our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, did you follow the story of the passage today? I hope that you followed the story of the passage today as I read it. Let me give you the quick summary of it. We saw this last week. We picked it up at this point again this week. But the spirit of the Lord rushes upon David when David is anointed by Samuel unto the office of king, which he will come to bear in fullness sometime later. So the spirit of God rushes on David. The spirit of God departs from Saul and in its place, a harmful spirit from the Lord torments Saul. And his servants who are around him are looking for some way, trying to figure out how can we calm and soothe a disturbed and angry king. Disturbed and angry kings are not good things to have around you, and so they look for some means by which they can take care of these episodes that Saul seems to be having, and they come up with a solution of music, and one of them, having heard of David's abilities, tells Saul about it. They send for David. Jesse sends David back into Saul's house, and as David plays the lyre for Saul, Saul is, in fact, refreshed, and Saul's heart is drawn to David. That's the story that we have before us today. Ralph Davis, one of the writers that I love on this text, puts it this way. It's as if the author is saying to us, look at that, doesn't that beat all? David is not only Yahweh's choice, but Saul's choice to be king as well. And it is the chosen king who keeps the rejected king from falling apart. What do you know about that? That's how God works. You can't figure out, first of all, how the youngest son of a small city is going to get into kingship even though Samuel has anointed him and in two quick steps. There we have the youngest son who was out watching the sheep brought into the throne room, into the place of kings, and even the king who has been rejected still loves him. That's the story. 
That's the story, and I hope you get the story because I'm not going to preach on the story today or at least the flow of that story today. And the reason that I'm not going to do it in terms of just working through the aspects of the story is because I think when you look at a text like this, at least when I read a text like this, it is full of fascinating questions. Things that you kind of read that and you go, wait a minute, I'm not sure I read that correctly, I'm not sure I understand that correctly, and I'm not sure what it means. I'm not sure what it means then, and I'm not sure what it means for me. So what I'd like to do this morning is I'm going to ask of this text today a series of what about questions, and I'll articulate those in just a moment. What about this and what about that? And we'll work our way through the text with those questions. But two things as it relates to those questions. Number one, as I answer or respond to the questions that I will pose about this text, I'm going to leave space. It's not possible in one sermon to say everything that there is to say about these questions. Leaving space is a good thing for you. It allows you, once this sermon is done, to go, huh, let me think about that some more. Let me study the scriptures. Let me think of other places in scripture where that might be said or referenced in some way so that you can do some wrestling. I leave space as well because it allows you as families and it allows you as small groups to take some time to think about it, to talk about it together and to wrestle with the word of God together. So there'll be some space, some blanks in these questions and in trying to answer them. And, and the other thing I want to say, this is, this is my point number two here for a moment, is simply to say the point of raising questions is not just to have uh, interesting answers or to satisfy kind of our intellectual curiosity when we come to the Bible. When we're asking questions, especially when we're asking them in the context of God's people gathered for worship, we should be asking them unto praise unto God and unto our personal growth in the Lord as well. So don't just take this as an intellectual exercise uh, so that you know a few more things uh, or can think about a few more things, but think of it as how can I praise God through this and likewise how can I grow because I think there is some serious meat for us in these questions. So here are the questions that, uh, that I'm going to raise with this text. What about the spirit departing from Saul? How do we understand that? What do we make of the spirit departing? Secondly, what about a harmful spirit from the Lord tormenting Saul? What are we to make of that? Third, what about the spirit rushing on David? What are we to glean, take from the idea of the spirit rushing upon King David? Fourth, what about music? This is an interesting passage that relates to some things with music. So what about music? And then finally, what about King Jesus and what about us? All right, first question then. What about the spirit departing from Saul? In verse 14, that's the beginning of this second section. I wanted to read 13 for context for us. But at the beginning of 14 there, it says, Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. What are we to make of this? And very practically and personally, can we count on the Spirit? If the Spirit departed from Saul as a result of Saul's sin, might the Spirit depart from us as well? 
how does this relate to David's prayer in Psalm 51? Psalm 51 is something that we sing periodically, something that we use as a confession periodically. And in Psalm 51, you'll remember that there's a phrase in there in the midst of David's prayer of repentance and confession that says, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. How does that relate to this? I'm not going to be able to answer that question in full. You can grab me afterwards, uh, and I'll answer that more in full. Give you a little bit of space with that one. But how does the Spirit of God work? How does the Spirit of God work in the Old Covenant? How does the Spirit of God work in the New Covenant? Same covenant, New Old Testament, New Testament. I think if you were to do a survey, maybe not a survey, maybe that wouldn't be the way to do it, but if you were to ask the average evangelical Christian, if you came up to them and said, listen, can you tell me about how the Holy Spirit operated in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant? Tell me about, tell me about the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Covenant. I think most evangelical Christians at that point would look at the floor, would look to see if there's somebody else around who might be able to answer the question, would probably, in fact, just give you a kind of a blank stare and go, I'm, I'm not really sure, but if, if, they were so brave as to proffer some type of a response to that question, it would probably be based, a little bit at least, on the text that is before us today, as well as a couple of texts from the Gospel of John, and they might say something like, well, in the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit, you see, didn't really abide in, didn't really dwell in God's people. The Holy Spirit kind of came upon people and then the Holy Spirit went off people. Um, and so the Holy Spirit was kind of like a bird, kind of lands here, comes off there, goes the other direction. Whereas in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit abides in and dwells in the people of God, which I find to be a holy unsatisfactory and errant explanation of the work of the Spirit of God in the Old Covenant. So what do we make of this then? What do we make of the departure of the Spirit from Saul? In order to answer that question, I need to, for the sake of this question for a moment, simplify, at the risk of oversimplifying, the work of the Spirit of God for a moment. Now, the, the work of the Spirit of God is wide and it's diverse and it's wonderful. Some aspects of it are very clear for us so that we can say, well, the Scripture says the Spirit does this and point to it. And other things we can say, listen, the, the Spirit is mysterious. We can't fully understand the work of the Spirit. So let me, at the risk of oversimplification, identify the work of the Spirit in two ways. That is to say, we can, one, Think about the work of the Spirit of God as it relates to our salvation. And then two, think of the work of the Spirit of God as it relates to the Spirit's strengthening or empowering people to do certain things. Okay, now I'm, I'm using that as very generic language because I'm trying to make some distinctions here in terms of how the Spirit works. But the Spirit giving strength to people to do certain things and the Spirit's work of salvation. I want to divide the Spirit's work those, in those two categories for a moment. They are different things, although they are, as we'll see in just a moment, 
very closely related things. So first of all, then, in salvation. The Spirit of God gives us life. The Spirit of God gives life to everyone and to everything on this planet. Life exists on the planet because of the breath of God, the Ruach of God in Hebrew. The Spirit of God gives life to all things. The Spirit of God for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, for those who are called by God, the elect of God, the Spirit of God not only gives life, but the Spirit of God gives new life within this, the believer. And then the Spirit of God renews and sustains that new life now and unto its completion in glory. That is the salvific work of the Spirit of God. He gives you life, he gives you faith, and he keeps you in that faith until glorification. Okay, that's the work that the Spirit of God does. This is an abiding work of the Spirit of God. Without the presence of and the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart, there is no way to have faith. And there is no way to sustain that faith. There is no salvation apart from the abiding, indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. There's no new birth, and there's no salvation. In the New Testament, in Galatians, you can talk about Isaac. Paul can talk about Isaac being born according to the Spirit. Now, you might say, wait, 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 that's New Covenant language. No, that's Old Covenant language. Isaac is born according to the Spirit. And likewise, when Jesus has the conversation with Nicodemus, and that's a, a conversation that many of us are familiar with in John chapter 3, Jesus rebukes Nicodemus for failing to understand, as a teacher of Israel, the idea of new birth by the Spirit. He's a teacher of Israel. He ought to, at least in general terms, Understand that there's no new birth without the Spirit of God. There's no salvation apart from the abiding, indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, and that is true in the Old Covenant and is true in the New Covenant as well. Now, it is better, it is fuller in the New Covenant, but it is not different. In essence, it is the same work of God that gave life in the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant as well. That's the salvific work of the Spirit of God. This other work of the Spirit of God, this strengthening for service, this raising up of people to do certain things, which in the life of the believer we can call the gifting of the Spirit of God, is a work that belongs primarily to believers, but it is a work that the Spirit does amongst men for the accomplishment of his purposes. Now, as it relates to believers primarily, we can think in the Old Covenant of this gifting. As you think of the gifting of the Spirit of God in the Old Covenant, we see it especially, for example, in the construction of the tabernacle. You remember in, in the construction of the tabernacle where the people were gifted for various types of activities related to the construction of and the worship in the tabernacle. And more specifically, especially in this book of 1 Samuel, when you think of the 
equipping the gifting work of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God equips people for the three offices that we've traced throughout this book from the beginning all the way up to this point. In other words, the Spirit of God equips those who will serve Israel as prophets, as priests, and as kings. And in addition to equipping kings, it equips, the Spirit of God equips those who are forerunners of kings, that is to say the judges. And so this phrase that the Spirit of God comes upon them is one that we saw in the book of Judges as well. This is an equipping work of the Spirit of God that can be a permanent thing, but it can also take place on a temporary basis as we have seen already in this book. You'll recall that when Saul was anointed to be king, there's a time, or there's two times that we looked at already, where the Spirit of God rushes upon him and Saul prophesies, right? Remember those two episodes that we looked at a while back where that takes place? That's not a permanent thing. Paul, Saul wasn't constantly in the company of the prophets and prophesying, but it was something that God allowed to do and to take place for that particular moment and for the particular work that God has given. And even in the new covenant, we can see those who do things, who are not believers, who do things by the work of the Spirit of God that's not a salvific work, but nevertheless, they're acting on God's behalf. I'll give you three quick examples. One, think of Herod, uh, pardon me, think of Pilate, who nails a sign up on the cross above Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. I've written what I've written. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, you, you wrote what God wanted you to write on that sign and put it up above the one who is the king of the Jews, Caiaphas, the high priest, who prophesies saying, let one man die for the nation. He's not functioning as a believer at that point. He's functioning in opposition to Jesus, but is being used by the Spirit of God to speak truth. And a verse that we've quoted a couple of times with respect to Saul, there are many who on the last day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things in your name? Didn't we have power that was given to us and we did works in your name? We cast out spirits and demons in your name. Didn't we do those kind of things? And he'll say, get away from me because I never knew you. I never knew you. When the Spirit of God departs from Saul, what we are talking about specifically is the enabling of God for the task that was assigned to Saul, namely that of being king of Israel. That's what's departing from Saul. As I've said all along, Saul's salvation to us doesn't look good but we don't have definitive statements. I'm not hopeful, but we don't have definitive statements about that. But this departing, as all of this scripture makes clear, as the ascension of David, the, the recession of Saul will make clear, relates to the empowerment of uh, the gift for the service of kingship. That's what it means when the spirit departed from Saul. What then, what about a harmful spirit from the Lord coming upon Saul and tormenting him. What, what are we to make of a harmful spirit from a holy God? 
Liz, is, is this Motorcycle Sunday? Do we know? <laughs> All right. All right. If you're, if you're visiting with us today, Conchahawken once a summer has Motorcycle Sunday and they drive through with sirens and things like that. Thank you for shutting those windows. Let's shut the others and then open them back up once they, uh, once they go through. So what can you say about this? Now, let me clarify something. Before we go into uh, a little bit of an explanation of how do we understand this harmful spirit aspect uh, with the work of God, let me clarify one thing. It appears to us when we look at the effects, the impact of this harmful spirit upon Stahl, that these are what we would call psychological, psychiatric, or some kind of emotional disturbances that Saul apparently experiences on an episodic type basis. What we should be clear of is whatever we're saying and whatever scripture is saying, the point is not in any way to say that everybody who has psychological difficulties or everybody who has disorders or episodes, emotive episodes like this, is somehow demon-possessed or influenced by a spirit for harm. That's not the connection we should make from this. Okay, There are all sorts of complexities that are involved in someone struggling, and, and I think we know that, and we don't want to make any kind of statement here. The scripture here is addressing not what happens to everybody, but what happened to Saul in particular. Okay, So don't cross-apply that in the wrong way. But let's then ask the question, all right, what do we say about this? You know, this text explains what is happening with Saul, and yet what is happening with Saul is difficult to hear. A harmful spirit comes upon him. In the first place, I think what we need to say about that is that it is a statement of God's ultimate sovereignty over all things. Scripture can and does attribute to God as the first cause, the unmoved mover of all things, you can ultimately say that this takes place under God. Whatever that is, takes place under God's rule. That is not to charge God with being morally responsible for evil, but it is to say that evil's not out there running a parallel course to God. It's not out there trying to, it's not able to thwart the plans of God but in fact, it is under God and under his decreed will. For example, uh, and we could find any number of scriptures that are similar, frankly, to this one uh, or that state what I'm about to. Amos chapter 3, verse 6 says this, Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? The point is very simple. God does what has, takes place in this world. God is sovereign overall, including this harmful spirit that is tormenting Saul. Now let's look at it in two then possible ways underneath of the sovereignty of God. One is the possibility that this is in fact an evil spirit, uh, which is to say a demon. And we go, well, can God send an evil spirit? Uh, well, the answer is God can permit an evil spirit to accomplish his purposes and his intentions. If that sounds strange to us, it, sh it shouldn't. Uh, we see this played out exactly in the book of Job, right? This is exactly the picture of uh, what is taking place in Job. The, the, Satan must ask permission of the Lord, and the Lord must grant it. 
for the purposes that God has ordained. Matthew Henry, one of the old commentators, writes this, the devil by divine permission troubled and terrified Saul. Let's uh, reopen those windows. Uh, thanks to you who shut them, and thanks to you for now opening them. Uh, now there's a third possibility here, a third point, a third way of looking at this. This may not be a harmful spirit as in an evil spirit, but it may in fact be a spirit whose presence causes harm. And, and what I mean by that is when God brings judgment into the world via his angels, that is a righteous and a perfect and a just judgment from God. Angels do that. Think, for example, of the Exodus. Think, for example, of uh, the book of Revelation. Angels do that, and yet they are doing God's will. They're not evil as a result of doing it. What takes place is harmful to the person against whom the judgment is being met. And that's what takes place, I think, here as well, that whatever the case, whether it's an evil spirit or whether it's a spirit from the Lord, uh, this is clearly under God's authority and this is a chastisement that comes from the Lord. All right, which brings us to our next question. What about the spirit of God rushing on David? What are we to make of this? And I've noted it. We've seen language like this before. We saw language like this in the book of Judges. The spirit of God rushes on someone for the accomplishment of a particular task. We, in fact, saw language just like this applied to Saul as well. The spirit of God rushed upon Saul as well. What are we to make of this? Well, consistent with what we have said before, we should not equate this moment, this rushing on of the spirit that took place at his anointing by Samuel with salvation. This is not necessarily the moment of David's salvation. The fact of the matter is God searched for a man after his own heart. God raised up a man after his own heart. And at the appointed time, God sent Samuel and anointed him and provided him with the spirit of God for the task that was set before him. If that seems confusing to us, think for a moment of Jesus. Jesus was in fact born of the spirit of God, right? In fact, born of the spirit of God, not spiritually speaking, but conceived by the Holy Spirit. When Jesus was anointed, he was anointed at his baptism, the spirit of God came down upon him, came down upon him, anointing him for the office which he was to hold on behalf of humanity, namely, unsurprising, that of being a prophet and a priest and a king. The spirit of God came on him for the tasks that were set before him. The spirit of God is gifting David for the role that has been given to David. But we can say a couple of more things about this gifting of David for this role. And, and the first is this. The first is recognizing that, that his gifting seems to be broader than the gifting that has been given to other kings or judges that preceded him. Along the way, we've seen those who have been uh, gifted or had the spirit rush upon them 
and then be victorious in battle. Now, of course, we're going to see David being victorious. And even in this text, he's praised for his valor and his military prowess. And obviously, in Saul's service, he ends up being Saul's armor bearer at this point. But it is clearly more than that as well. When David is seen to be a man of prudent speech and a man who can play an instrument well and a man who is capable of bringing comfort to other people. I think what we get here in this kind of, and just for a moment, just restricting ourselves to this passage, I think what we get here is a peek into what the Spirit of God begins to do in the New Covenant amongst you, amongst us. And that is to say to diversify out those gifts and the type of gifts for the benefit of the church as well. I think in David we get a peek of what that begins to look like in the new covenant. But the other thing that I, that, that I think we can say here about the spirit rushing upon Saul is to point out the most profound work of the spirit of God, which is actually found in verse 18 here. The, th the last thing that is on the list describing David is this, and the Lord is with him, and the Lord is with him. The spirit of God ministers to the saints of God, whether they're the saints of God in the old covenant or us right now. The spirit of God ministers to the saints of God, the presence of God. That's what the Spirit does. That's the most deep and profound work of the Spirit. It's a summary of all His work, and it is the sweetest thing that the Spirit of God does. It's so visible in the life of David, who is a man after God's own heart, as the Spirit of God ministers the presence of God to his heart and to ours as well. So the Spirit of God rushes upon David for the kingship, but we get a peek of some other things to come for us also, which leads us to ask this question. All right, what about music? Connected with David and connected with the working of the Spirit in David is apparently this gift of music. There's a real connection that is here. All cultures recognize and appreciate and value music, whether you're talking about ancient cultures or advanced cultures, the most modern cultures that we have, music seems to be an indispensable part of who we are as people, as a way of getting inside of us. And Saul's servants seem to recognize what we might call, or I, I don't know if we're the people of God, but at least people in general might call the healing power of music. Music has a power in it. It has an ability to communicate to us. And their idea is if we can get someone to play music for Saul when he's in the midst of one of his fits, then perhaps there will be some relief for us and for Saul as well. And in, in so doing, we can see two things here. One is negative, and the second is positive about music. Negatively speaking, Saul and his servants are in fact looking for some symptomatic relief of a problem that we know as the readers of this text of a problem that is deep-seated, 
that resides deep within the heart of Saul. It is a deep spiritual problem that exists in Saul, and the answer to the problem that exists in Saul is not going to be music or any kind of medication that Saul can take. The answer to the problem for Saul is repentance, a deep-seated spiritual repentance. What he needs to do is, ironically enough, repent like David or, or repent like David will. What Saul needs to pray, and maybe he needs to sing this prayer, is renew a right spirit within me and cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me and restore to me the joy of my, your salvation. That's what Saul actually needs. But instead of that, what his servants want to give to him and what Saul wants to receive is merely that which is on the surface, the thing in and of itself, the music in and of itself, as if that will be the healing thing. Saul and his servants are looking the exact same way we have seen them look throughout. They're looking on the surface of things. And so normally speaking, and, and I'm drawing this from one of the authors that I, that I read on the passage, when we see this, this phrase thrown in here, David, uh, uh, Saul says, David has found favor in my sight. Well, typically that's a good thing to find favor in someone's sight. But here we've got to see the double entendre that is there. They're still looking with their eyes. Earlier in this chapter, remember the rebuke is, God does not see as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, the Lord looks on the heart. They're still just trying to look at how do we get rid of these symptoms, rather than how do we cure what ails Saul. So this music aspect to us reveals things that are negative for us, and the reality is all gifts can be looked at simply on their surface level. A gift that is given to you by God can be used just on its surface level and not appreciate the God who stands behind the gift and the desire that he has for it. Without going into it, the example is how the Corinthians used and viewed the gift of tongues. Okay, they thought, this is great, we got the gift of tongues, isn't this cool? Do you have the gift of tongues? I have the gift of tongues, it's a really cool gift. If you don't have it, sorry, you're not as good as I am. And they didn't see that the intention the intention of God giving the gift of tongues was the distribution of the gospel, the building up of the body in love. They missed the point of the gift. Same thing here with music. They missed the point. But for us, we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater here. The point isn't, well, okay, then, then no music. Then we, then we shouldn't have any music as well because there is something that is really positive here about the music and what the Spirit of God has to offer through music, through David, Israel's music director, Israel's minstrel, Israel's musician, because the music can minister to the heart. Songs have been in Israel before, of course, but they explode with David. It's unsurprising to us that in the Davidic covenant or in the expression of the Davidic covenant, we find songs at the center of it. All kinds of songs are given to us to express the faith and to express the struggles of life in this world. And the New Testament affirms this as a gift and as a pathway. Listen to these connections. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says this, be filled with the Spirit. 
And that's what we're talking about, right? Be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. See the connection there? The connection between being filled with the Spirit and making melody with, to the Lord in your heart comes right through this gift that God has given. Sing to one another. Sing these hymns and be built up with the Spirit of God. Being filled with the Spirit and your heart and music are intimately connected. For Saul, it was a surface level, but it doesn't need to be only that for us. So what about Jesus and what about us? Well, obviously, I've got to be brief here. Jesus possessed the fullness of the Spirit. You saw it on the verse that's in, on the front of your bulletin from Isaiah. Jesus possessed the fullness of the Spirit, and as he ascended into heaven, he gave gifts to men. He distributed the Spirit of God as he ascended. Salvifically, in gifts and in his presence as well. While the essence of the work of the Spirit of God is the same in the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant, the reality is that in the New Covenant, since the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is in fact broader, that is to say, it's not confined to one nation, to one particular type of person. It's broader throughout the world. It's broader across the body of God's people. It's fuller in terms of the revelation and the work of Jesus that has been given to us. It's deeper because the Spirit of God is working these deep things of God into our hearts, as we read in 1 Corinthians. You can read that in a couple of places. And finally, it's in one word, better. The work of the Spirit is better in the new covenant. Not different, better. That's the word from the book of Hebrews. Because now, we're not in a time of anticipation, we're in a time of inauguration in terms of what God has done and what God has accomplished. So for those of you who are in Christ, the Spirit of God has been given to you and the Spirit of God will not be taken from you because it depends on God's decree. God will not go against his decree. The Spirit of God will not be taken from you. The Spirit of God has given you gifts which we should seek to discover and to develop and to deploy. And the spirit at work in our lives is dynamic, dynamic. And that is why Paul can say to believers who possess the spirit of God, he can instruct us saying, be filled with the spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And he can instruct us and say, do not grieve the Spirit of God. The Spirit is stable in us, but not static in us. The work of the Spirit is dynamic in our lives. And so, here's the upshot of this instruction from God to us. Be cognizant of the work of the Spirit of God in your life. 
You don't do anything for God without the work of the Spirit operating in your life. Secondly, pray and seek his work in your life and heart of the promises of Jesus. This, this has to be one of the best. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That's what Jesus said. That's what Jesus promised. Ask. Ask for the Spirit of God to be at work in your life. And then speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so walk by the Spirit. Lord, we thank you for these words. And we pray that indeed they would instruct us. Would you forgive us, Lord, triune God, for our forgetfulness of the work of the Spirit in our lives. And Spirit of God, Father, or Father Jesus, send the Spirit into our midst. Breathe on us and renew us in our love for you, our love for one another, our service to you, our appreciation of your presence, the exercise of our gifts, our ability to speak on your behalf. Spirit of God, all the things that you do in our lives. Never leave us. Restore to us the joy of our salvation. Amen.